Welcome to the Business with Bordeaux podcast, where we're bringing basic business tips to entrepreneurs and the future leaders of tomorrow. Let's get down to business. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Business with Bordeaux podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on the show for another week. And uh, I just want to thank everybody who rocks with the show every single week in and out, no matter what. Uh, All y'all rock and you keep me driven to do what I do. And so anyway, I just wanted to shout that out real quick. And this week we have an interview from Mr. Dale Gladding. Uh, Awesome guy. It was a great interview. And the reason why this interview is important is because a lot of folks out there who are entrepreneurs, they might not want to necessarily do business. They want to do ministry. But at at the same time, you want to be able to live while you're doing ministry full time. And so uh, Dale does a great job in discussing uh, how he went from volunteering at a ministry that he started into it growing into a $600,000 a year ministry. And then he ended up leaving that and then creating another ministry that he currently does that is now up to about $100,000 a year in revenue. And so obviously it's nonprofit and this ministry works. So it's not, you know, all glorious and, you know, pay out the wazoo or anything, but he does share a lot of the things that he learned and um, really, really great points that he made. And anyway, I'm sure you're going to get a lot from it. Before we jump in, I do want to thank our patrons for the show this week. Mr. Aaron Simpkins over at truestrengthapparel.com. And, um, and so as everybody knows, I've been doing a giveaway uh, about the past month, and I've been calling it the True Strength Giveaway. And so the whole entire concept was uh, you take two of your favorite episodes of the Business with Bordeaux podcast and you share them on your social media page and hashtag Business with Bordeaux and hashtag True Strength Apparel. And shout out to those who did share episodes via Twitter, via Facebook. But the winner that we have for this show is going to be named at the end of of the show. I do apologize, but I do want you to keep listening through and, uh, you know, to get to the end to the winner. But anyway, (laughs) sorry for that. But I also want to shout out to uh, WordPress Stan over at WPStan.com. If you're trying to work on a website, uh, it's much easier uh, to rank in Google's Google. If you don't use a templated website, you can rank, but it's harder. And so going with the WordPress design, is uh you know it's kind of more unique to what you need it to do and mr wordpress stan is here and available to give you a hand in that process so you can get your uh your e-business e-commerce up and going and anyway uh without further ado now we're going to jump into the interview with mr dale gladdings all righty welcome back to the business with bordo podcast we're here for another interview this interview is going to be a little bit differently because it's not the typical uh for-profit business that I, I usually talk with people about. Uh, this is actually a ministry, um, which, you know, all ministries kind of function like a business. But uh, I'm, I'm sitting down and I'm talking with Mr. Dale Gladding. And uh, right now he is uh, head of Risk Takers for Christ. And I uh, thank you for joining me this week. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Jason. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you talking with me, and uh, and I'm glad I get to do kind of an interview like this where it's not the typical business. Mm-hmm. Um, but the you know one reason I did want to talk to you is because even within ministries, you still have to bring in income. Absolutely. And even in churches and ministries, there are still some you know, there's still some of the same basic foundational things that you have to have in order for it to continue running. And so, you know, those are kind of the things I'd love uh, for our, our listeners to be able to kind of get a little bit of knowledge from you and kind of get some of your experience. And uh, and, and you've been a part of two different uh, big ministries, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say that they're big. Uh, okay. is, is pretty small. Uh, we're, we're entering our sixth year. Um, okay. Saints Prison Ministry, I was with that for 24 years. I'd say that was a mid-sized ministry. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I understand the nonprofit uh, sector pretty pretty well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool deal. So, so yeah, I mean, if you would, if you would just share a little bit, kind of a, a you know, a little bit of background about you. Um, if you want to share a testimony, you're more than welcome. If you just want to jump into the kind of meat and potatoes and how you got started uh, with, with doing your first ministry, that's fine too, man. Okay, sure. Uh, I came to Christ uh, at the age of 17, senior in high school. Uh, up until that point, I was a, a moral kid, uh, you know, never broke any, any laws or got caught doing so. But, uh, uh, 
I was a great student. Uh, I found my uh, uh, my identity, I guess, in academics. Uh, loved sports, but wasn't good enough to, to you know play at, at a high level. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, uh, I I excelled academically. You know, straight A student, six out of six hundred in my high school class, most likely to succeed, which led to a pride issue in my life. Um, mm. So after I came to faith in Christ. Um, I knew where I was going to spend eternity, but God had to do a work in my life uh, over a five-year period of time where he uh, broke me, basically, to, uh, to eliminate or um, divest me of the pride issue. And long story short, I went off to, to college. I, th- I originally had planned on going to uh, um, Rutgers University in New Jersey, majoring in poli-sci, uh, getting a degree, and going, into, uh, going to law school and eventually going into politics. And in my senior year of high school, I had an uncle that I kind of looked up to. He said, you know, you can go to uh, college nowadays for a sports administration. I'm like, wow, you know, I, I, I've loved sports, uh, particularly baseball growing up. Never was good enough to play at a high level. I thought, well, if I can't be on the playing field, maybe I can be in the front office. So I went off to college for that, uh, got my degree in uh, recreation management. And when I graduated in 1981, I was like, here I am, we're all come, come get me. And the world was like, who the heck are you? And we're not really interested <laughs> in what you have to offer. So I went through about 10 months uh, where Mr. Most Likely to Succeed was uh, driving a part-time uh, flower, uh, flower delivery truck and uh, working in an arcade in uh, a local mall, making change, pushing you know vacuums behind the, the Pac-Man machines, very humbling. Um, it, it really broke me. And at the same time, right. uh, the gal that I've been uh, in, uh, dating for three years and was two weeks away from getting engaged to uh, said, you know what, I want to see what else is out there. And uh, God used those two um, instances in my life to really break me to the point where I had no place to look but up. And uh, at that time, he kind of I really felt in my spirit. He was saying, you know, now I can finally use you. You know, you had you had the calling, you had some of the tools, but your pride and your ego got in the way. Well, within a month of that, really, uh, uh, I mean, I, I can look definitively at, at March 1977 and say that's that's when I came to faith in Christ. But it took five years for him to become actually the Lord of my life. And uh, when that happened, people would say, you know, you kind of got your, your act together now. What do you want to do with, the, with your life? And I'm like, you know what? I know it sounds crazy, but if I could do one thing with my life, I'd put a bunch of Christian ball players on a bus, tour the country and tell people about Jesus. And people said, no, really, what do you want to do with your life? You know, nobody's <laughs> ever done that before. You can't make a living. You can't sustain uh, you know, family or anything like that. And so I prayed about it. I sought godly counsel for about five years, uh, lived, eat, drank, slept, that whole vision, that whole burden. And finally, in 1987, said, you know what, if I don't take a baby step of faith, I'm going to stand at the pearly gate someday and wonder what if. So I took a bunch of Christian softball, softball players from my home church, kind of a ragtag team. Uh, I thought we were going to go into uh, you know, firehouse leagues, local rec leagues, bar league, whatever, in order to share our faith. The first door that opened up was in a uh, correctional institution in uh, the state of New Jersey. And to this date, uh, Jason, I've never gotten as much as a speeding ticket. So, you know, I, I don't have a long criminal <laughs> record. I'm also not an athlete. Uh, I'm a rapidly aging second baseman, I tell people. You know, I, I mean, I can hold my own on the softball field. I just played five games to pick up basketball yesterday, um, and, and our team won all five. So I, I can hold my own, but I've never played collegially, I've never played professionally, whatever. I think God chose me to start that ministry because, you know, I, I'm not I'm not an ex-offender, and I'm not a professional athlete. So people would look at the ministry, any success it had, and say, you know what, this has to be about God. It can't be about this clown. It can't be about this bozo. It's got to be about God. And so, you know, in, in that date, that was uh, June 6th of 1987, I'm coming up on a 30-year anniversary of being in, in ministry, particularly prison ministry. And uh, we went into uh, what was then Leesburg State Prison in, in Leesburg, New Jersey, uh, played ba- played uh, softball, rather, and uh, saw eight men come to saving faith in Christ. And up to that point, in my own cr- uh, personal walk with Christ, I'd led two people to faith in Christ, to my shame. You know, here I'd been a believer for 10 years, and I'd led two people to faith in Christ at that you know, at that timeline, you know, nobody would, would uh, the world would never be evangelized if, you know, I, I was dragging my feet. Well, here in one day of, of playing softball, you know, doing something I love, sharing my faith, you know, eight inmates come to saving faith in Christ. Well, we knew we, we wanted to take this year round. Um, you obviously can't play softball in, in the middle of uh, December and January in New Jersey. So we added a volleyball okay. team. Then we added a basketball team. Then we expanded to uh, women's sports and soccer and by the time I left that ministry, uh, 24 years later, uh, we were the largest athletic 
prison ministry in the country, if not the world. We had a headquarters in, in um, New Jersey. We had a branch office in Colorado Springs, one in Richmond, one in Charlotte, and one outside Atlanta. Uh, I've had the privilege, really, of ministering in about 400 prisons all across North America and Africa, uh, sharing my faith uh, with over a, a half million inmates. And I can identify with them, uh, Jason, even though I don't have a criminal record. Uh, I'm the chief of sinners. You know, I, I identify very much with, with the Apostle Paul on that. I know the evil that, that resides even to this day in my own heart. So I can go into a, to an institution and, and, and minister effectively to a, a mass murderer like David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, who's a friend of mine of a Sullivan Correctional Facility in, in, in Fallsburg, New York, or anybody that's in there for, for drug dealing, like 80% of the uh, prison population are in there for, for a drug-related offense. Um, so it's been a great ride. Uh, I did uh, six years ago, uh, I felt I had taken that ministry is about as far as my skill set uh, could go. And I was looking for something new, something different. I felt that God was burdening me for about three years. Uh, I, I told people kind of, kind of tongue in cheek. I did what everybody else does when they're seeking God's will for their life. I wrote three books and I ran for Congress twice. <laughs> and I uh, probably burnt myself out in the process because I was losing my two spiritual mentors. Uh, the Lord called both of them home. Uh, my best friend from childhood, uh, he, uh, the Lord called him home, but thankfully, uh, four months prior to that, I had a chance to lead, lead him to faith, saving faith in Christ. Uh, but I needed something new, something. Uh, I have an entrepreneurial spirit, and um, I have like a founder's mentality. So we just picked up roots, kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, packed everything up on the uh, the back of uh, our uh, Ford Explorer and a couple uh, other vehicles and headed down to Florida, uh, 1,100 miles away, started over from scratch. And I went from making a good salary uh, with, with my previous ministry, where I was the you know executive director for for 24 years, to starting over, working three jobs simultaneously, and grossing $18,000, and somehow you know paying a mortgage and, and putting food on the table for my wife, myself, and three adult kids. And God uh, supplied our needs. Uh, I've been able now to uh, to go full time with with, uh, with that ministry. I don't have to do the other two part-time jobs. So, you know, playing into what you were asking before. Yeah, I know a lot about, you know, raising support and, and, and trying to fund the ministry. Uh, I've done two of them from startup to, to where they're at now. I'm not an expert, but I have the life experience to, to say, you know, this is what works and hey, this is what doesn't work because I think you'll learn a lot more in life from trial and error with the emphasis on the word error. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And, you know, if you would share a little bit about, you know, what it was like to start getting funding for your first ministry, because I know there's a lot of people who want to do ministry and they are, they're kind of blocked by that mentality of not being able to support a family. And, you know, so what was it like, you know, getting your first bit of funding for your first, the first ministry you started up? Yeah, the first ministry, um, and to show you how, how small my vision was at the time, we, we called it the South Jersey Saints because we thought we were going to minister in South Jersey, you know, and eventually we changed it to, to the Saints Prison Ministry because we wanted to go uh, to a larger extent. And by the time I left it, we had been in, I think, 23 states all across the country in Canada. And uh, now that ministry was just still, you know, firing on all cylinders. I think they've been in about the... Uh, 28 states, uh, maybe a few more than that. Uh, we started with $200 in pocket change, kind of sitting around my kitchen table. And, uh, you know, I had a full-time job, so I was doing this, you know, on a, on a volunteer basis. Uh, did that for about three years. Then I went part-time for a few years, and then finally you know, took a step of faith um, in January of 1994. We went full-time. Um, I think if you're passionate about something, I think that goes a whole long ways. I'm a real passionate guy. Uh, I think it's my greatest strength. I think it's my greatest weakness. Um, people give to people. That's kind of uh, in, in sales vernacular, but also in, in the nonprofit uh, world, that's very, very true. People don't necessarily give to a cause. They give to somebody who's involved and who's passionate about that cause. Um, so all I can tell you is, like, like in, in my previous ministry, you don't wake up in the morning, Jason, and say, you know, today I've decided to breathe. You do it because it comes naturally. You have to do it to, to survive. I was so burdened, so called of God, uh, that vision was so uh, deep and, and, and impressed upon my heart, I had to do it. And so that, that, that vision and that, that passion is contagious. And I think people will follow somebody that, that knows where they're going. You know, uh, one, of, one of my uh, heroes in life was uh, Ronald Reagan. You know, even people that didn't agree with him liked him because he, he was winsome uh, he was a nice guy but he also he knew where he was going he knew what he believed and so there you know i might not understand or agree with everything uh, all of his positions but this guy has an idea 
a focus on where he wants to go. And so that's leadership. And, I, and I'll follow that. And people gravitated to us very, very quickly. I mean, like I said, we started out with our our uh, softball team from our home church. Uh, God brought in some guys that played Division One basketball on uh, the Big Five, St. Joe's and LaSalle, that, that made us competitive immediately uh, on the court in, in the correctional institutions that we go into. And basically, I mean, I have a sphere of influence to people that I could tap into, uh, that I could you know, bring on the needs of the ministry before them. But you can't do it alone because your sphere of influence is yours. Mine is mine. But the more people we got involved and that we allowed to take ownership and, and feel that they were equal shareholders in the ministry, and I think that's very, very important. You know, it can't be top down. It has to be bottom up to, to some extent where everybody has a part in it. And as, as we would expand and form a new softball team, well, guess what? That's 15, 20 new softball players, all of whom have their own sphere of influence. So the way that we built the, the financial model for that ministry, not purposely, it just kind of happened that way, was, you know, if a guy went out to raise money for his participation in the ministry, guess what? That not only fed our coffers, but that expanded our database of potential donors. Um, and people do give to people because if a guy would play for us for like five years and then leave, like 99% of those donors that were supporting him would leave because they believed in him, not necessarily the ministry. They believed in the ministry that he was involved in. So that, I think that's very crucial. People do give to people, whether it's in the nonprofit world, whether it's the ministry world, whether it's in the business world. Um, but I think, you know, if you, ha if you have a, a good idea, kind of like, you know, the way to build a better mousetrap, so to speak, um, the format that we used, 80% uh, of prisoners uh, and studies that have borne this out over the many, many, many years refuse to go to a conventional religious program. They won't go to a chapel service, they won't go to a Bible study. And yet, Every prison ministry that I've known up until the point that we started our ministry, that's what they did. They would go into the chapel and say, hey, come here, you know, uh, a Bible study. Come and, 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 and join us for, for a chapel service when 80% of the guys wouldn't do that. And guess where they're at? They're out in the recreation yard because your average inmate is a 22-year-old minority from the inner city. He doesn't want to go to church, but he wants to play ball. So because I'm, I'm sports-oriented, we would go out to where they're at. You know, instead of inviting them to come where we're at, we went out to the rec yard, played softball, basketball, soccer, you know, powerlifting demonstrations, whatever it took, and that, that was the model that we used. Um, so people saw that, hey, this is a, a unique, you know, better mousetrap idea. You're, you're reaching the 80% of the prison population that nobody else is reaching. You know, by the time I left that ministry, we, we had seen 23,000 inmates come to saving faith in Christ. We'd, we'd share the gospel with, with over 300,000 at that point. Um, and people, you know, people want a return on investment. You know, in, in business, they want a return on investment, but in ministry, they want a return on investment. You know, right. if, if they're supporting you and all they hear is, well, you know, God closed this door and God closed this door and God closed this door. Man, I could go into a church and give an update and say, hey, you know, we just went into XYZ prison on Saturday we shared our faith with 300 inmates and 42 of them made professions of faith in Jesus Christ. Inmates, you know, 95% of whom are going to get out, 75% who are going to go back in unless they come to saving faith in Christ, unless they're discipled and mentored on the outside. And then guess what? They have a, a 10 to 15% recidivism rate. And in fact, our, our previous ministry, we started a, an aftercare ministry that worked with men six months pre-release up to six months post-release. We had a 5% recidivism rate. Of the 200 men in that program, only 10 of them either committed a parole violation or a new crime. So I could even go to a non-religious uh, organization. I could go to the you know, Kiwanis Club or the Lions Club and say, hey, look, I'm not going to talk to you the spiritual benefits of our ministry. I'm going to talk to you about the financial benefits. You're spending $30,000 a year to house a man. 95% of them are, go are, are getting out and 75% of them are going back in. Are you tired of wasting your tax dollars? I can show you a better way. So mm -hmm. I think I think you know having a better mousetrap. I think being passionate about you know the vision and, and the calling, and I think making everybody feel like they're equal shareholders in that ministry. We we we've been over our backwards to try and create a very family-oriented ministry so that everybody felt like you know what this isn't you know Dale Gladding Prison Ministry. This is the Saints Prison Ministry, and I was important to this ministry. You know, the person that grades the Bible correspondence courses, or the person that serves as the pen pal, or the person that, that stuffs envelopes, or the person that goes in and shares their faith, or the person that, that hits a home run, or the person that, that you know, makes it, buries a three at, 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 at the final buzzer. Everybody was on, was on an equal playing field. Right. And I, I think there's two things that, I mean, there were several different things there that you said that kind of have their own entire uh, category you can go into, but... Two things I would say is uh, is one uh, I find it great 
that there were different people that were going out and getting support because with a lot of ministry starting off, you have one person who's going out and doing all the pitching. Right. And then if that one person leaves, like you eventually got called to leave, right. then those people might only have that one person that they really trust. Exactly. And so I think it's fantastic that you were able to, to kind of build a team there that could go out and do, you know, fundraising uh, because once you were able to leave, that allows for the, it to continue. Right. And, uh, and not just that, but, you know, when you were talking about the financial ROI, I love how you were kind of explaining that it's not just a, a, a spiritual benefit for the inmates, but, I mean, really, essentially, you're, you're saving taxpayers' dollars right. down the road. Right. And who doesn't love to help lower taxes? Right. And, and you're, <laughs> I mean, you're restoring families. You're... you're making your community safer because like I said, if, if 95% are coming out, guess where are they going? They're coming back into your community and my community. In what kind of spiritual condition do you want them coming back? You know, as law abiding citizens, I mean, we, we would use the, the kind of the catchphrase, we're helping uh, transform these men from tax burdens to taxpayers. So in addition to saving the $30,000 a year, which is the national average to, to house a man or a woman in, in a correctional facility, it can be fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 in you know, California, New York, or uh, depending on, on their level of security, uh, uh, level of custody. But there are ancillary financial benefits because now you, you know, you're saving on, on the law, law enforcement area, you're saving in the court costs, you're saving you know, on, on, on the, the, the parole officer situation. Now the man is coming back into the family. He's becoming the bread uh, winner, and, and, and he's providing a positive male role model uh, for the family. And so they're no longer on you know welfare or, or social services. So I mean that thirty thousand dollars that's just the, the scratch of the surface of, of, of the, the the financial benefits to society for getting a man out of prison and helping him to make it you know on, on the streets and become a productive citizen. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And so whenever you were, um, whenever you were going out and getting, uh, funds and fundraising for your ministry, were there like, was it just kind of an open amount that people would give or did y'all have like, did y'all simplify it by doing like certain, like a monthly gift or a yearly gift? Mm -hmm. How did that kind of balance itself well, out? We did, we did a little bit of both. Um, I mean, obviously you need regular givers so you can, you know, formulate a budget. I mean, one of your, your, your uh, original plan, uh, points was that, you know, ministries need to operate somewhat along a business model. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot more faith element that that's involved, but you still have to be good stewards. You know, I mean, scripture is very clear on that. You, you know, before you build a building, you count the cost so that you don't get halfway done. And everybody kind of looks at you and mocks the Lord because you didn't have the, the foresight financially and otherwise to, to count the cost and, and, and put the monies together. So you need a regular base of regular givers. You know, we had, a, we had a whole lot of people that were monthly givers. We developed a, a network of supporting churches. Um, and you don't get that much from churches necessarily. I mean, we would get maybe 10% of, of our budget from the churches. But guess what churches are made up of? Individuals. Right. Okay. Yeah. So in, in, in the nonprofit world, kind of the, the rule of thumb is about 90% of your, your giving is going to come from individuals. And the other 10%, you know, maybe from supporting churches, we got a little bit of grant money, a little bit of United Way money, things of that nature. In fact, for our aftercare program, we got a, a two two-year grants, so a four-year period of time, $60,000 each uh, from the New Jersey Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, because we were providing transitional housing and food and clothing and job training, job placement, uh, spiritual uh, counseling, um, addiction counseling, things of that nature. Uh, and 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 we had the numbers to back up that, hey, we're lowering recidivism rates, we're saving taxpayers dollars. Uh, but the vast majority of money is going to come from individuals. But if you go to a church, first you're going to have to, you know, meet with, well, you're going to get permission to even talk with anybody in the church. Then you got to, you know, meet with the missions committee. Then that, that gets, you know, goes up to the, the deacons. Then it goes up to the elders. Then it goes up to, you know, whoever makes the decisions. Then, you know, maybe they you speak of the church and then maybe a year later they put you into the, into the missions budget. So from the time you first make contact with the church to the time you get dollar one, it might be a two, three year process. But all during that period of time, you're sharing your vision, your focus, your track record, everything else uh, with the individuals and they respond a lot more quickly. So any, any nonprofit organization, 90% rule of thumb uh, is gonna come from individuals. So, but the way that you 
tap into individuals is you go to churches. So again, the model that, that we had, yeah, we have people, you know, our missionary athletes, and we, we consider them not softball players, not basketball players, missionary athletes, short-term missionaries. We require them to raise prayer support and financial support. Uh, and then, you know, we would require maybe $500 for a season and $500 maybe to go on a, you know, five-day mission trip at the end of the season uh, to a to prisons that we couldn't reach on a regular Saturday. So that guy might be raising $1,000, that's his requirement, but as he sends out to his sphere of influence, maybe he raises two or $3,000. So now we're actually making money on each one of those missionary athletes and we're building our donor base. But uh, that was the model, and, and when we left, I think we had about 40, 45 supporting churches uh, all across you know, South Jersey, Southeastern Pennsylvania, uh, Delaware, but all, also across the country because each of those guys, you know, our missionary athletes might have come from, you know, a, a church in Washington State or or California. Or guess what? When we go to prisons in those areas, we might stop in a church and that's in that area and, and have an opportunity to share the ministry. And those churches wind up supporting us as well. So 90 to 10 is, is the split. But don't neglect churches because they're made up of individuals. And that's that's right. your best you know resource there. Right. So it kind of worked like if somebody was doing like a walkathon and you have to, you know, people try to raise a certain amount of money in order to participate. So was it that kind of a model with the athletes? Yeah, exactly right. And, and we also did special events. Um, you know, we did, you know, golf tournaments and we did auctions, things like that. And they don't, I think there's a limited amount of benefit as far as the amount of time and effort you put into it. And then, you know, the monies that are generated, um, we did better on on uh, auctions than we did on anything else. I mean, there'd be times that we would put, you know, dozens, hundreds of hours uh, of prep time into a golf tournament and net proceeds, you know, thirty five hundred dollars. I think the best one we ever did was ten thousand dollars. So you put a whole lot of time and effort into that and, and don't get a lot of cost benefit. Uh, one of the better things we did um, from a golf standpoint, and I, I love to play golf, so I'll use this as a, as a, as a model. We did a three day, two night uh, Ryder Cup golf theme kind of event where the idea was to invite Christian men with means who love the Lord and bring them together and have a, a fun time, but expose them to the ministry over a three day, two night kind of kind of deal. And it was it was to introduce some people to the ministry or people that were on the periphery that knew about the ministry, get them into the inner circle. And I remember the first year that we did that within a week, one of the, the businessmen uh, that was involved in that had such a good time and was so impressed with the ministry that we would share um, the different in just little snippets at each meal time or, or, or team meetings, sends a check for ten thousand dollars. So, I mean that that little model there, you know, played out, and, and the cost benefit was certainly certainly uh, advantageous to the ministry. But in any of this stuff, it, it's really people to people. It's it's you know developing relationships. You're only going to get X number of people that say, "Wow, that's a great idea. That's a wonderful vision. I really support the ministry. Great results." I don't know anybody personally involved in it, but I'm going to support it anyway. There are very, very few people that'll do that. You know, it's, it's well. I know Jason. Jason's a good guy. Jason's passionate about this ministry. I'm going to support Jason's involvement in that ministry. So you got to make that personal connection. Right, and I would also uh, beg people that don't try to get a part of 35 different ministries and raise money for all of them because it looks bad if you jump around from thing to thing to thing to thing. Absolutely. And uh, because people don't trust whenever people are starting up 15 different ministries in a year. Right. And they give them money, you know, the first two times, and then they just kind of give up on trying to help them out. And I'll tell you what else is important too, Jason. When somebody gives, man, you better thank them, you know, seven right. different ways kind of thing. I mean, we... We would always send out a, you know, a thank you letter with a, a, a receipt for tax purposes to that in individual that gave. We would then add them to our uh, newsletter mailing list that would have absolutely no asks in there whatsoever. So they're, they're getting at least 12 communications a year from us in a, in a monthly newsletter and maybe four direct mail asks at the most. And we're also requiring our missionary athletes to write a personal thank you letter to that person and then to give them periodic updates over the course of that softball season, basketball season, whatever. So for that one gift, they're getting a thank you from the ministry, from the ministry head with a personal note written on it. They're getting a tax receipt for, for, for tax purposes. They're getting a thank you letter from the missionary athlete that they supported and maybe one or two updates a mid season and a postseason update. So they're getting like five or six thank yous for that one gift. And then they're getting information that has no ask at all. They're, they're letting, we're letting them know what kind of bang they're getting for the ministry buck. 
So I think a lot of ministries uh, do a disservice and, and, and they miss the boat when somebody just gives and like, well, thank you. And they go on. They, they don't hear anything more or they don't even get a thank you. You know, there's a lot of ministries that do that. Man, we, we tried to go overboard. And if, you know, if it was a, a larger gift, you know, we might send them, you know, uh, you know, an extra a T-shirt or a water bottle or, you know, a gift book or something to say, you know what? And, and personal, you know, if somebody gave to the ministry, uh, it, it got to the point where I used to do it on every size gift. But, it, you know, the ministry grew to, you know, six, seven thousand dollar annual budget. So I could only do it for, for gifts of one hundred dollars or more. But you better believe I'm writing a personal note on each and every one of those thank yous and each and every one of those receipts. So that person is getting, you know, I'm nothing special, but I'm the CEO of the, of the ministry. I'm the executive director. They're getting a personal note from me saying, hey, I know who you are. That, that gift meant a whole lot to me. I know it was sacrificial. This is what God how God blessed and multiplied and broke that, 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 that gift uh, from our ministry standpoint. And thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and that's really important because, you know, there's many people that I'll support, you know, maybe uh, a friend of mine, their kid will go on, on a mission trip and they'll ask you for the money. And so you'll send it, you know, more to support the person, not not necessarily the kid. And you hear nothing. You hear you, you hear no thank you, and you hear no ministry report of what happened on that trip. You know, all you got was the ask, and you never got a thank you. Man, I think you you missed the boat. Hey, it's just it's just not proper. It's not good manners. You should thank people over and over again and do it sincerely. But if you want to develop them from a one-time giver into a regular supporter and maybe a deeper donor. You got to say thank you, and you got to let them know that there is there is much a part of this ministry as the guys are going to the prison. We would tell people that the three ways you can be involved are to pray, to pay, or to play. Okay, I mean mm -hmm. prayer is it's not lip service. I mean if we're, if I'm right. going into a maximum security prison with you know 1,500 you know murderers and rapists and and, and big time drug dealers, I want to be prayed up, and I want people you know with a prayer covering. <laughs> right. You know, but. So, so for you know, you can be a little old lady, you know, living at home, and she can be praying really hard and having more of an impact for God's kingdom than the guys that actually go in. Or you can pay because it takes, you know, it's a business and it takes money. It takes money to, you know, to to either rent a van or buy a bus and 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 put uniforms on our players and sports equipment and the gospel literature and the follow up and the insurance and the meals and, you know, on the longer trips, you know, the accommodations, everything else. Or you can actually go out there and play. And when I say play, not just you know participate in the athletic component, we would take in guys that have don't have an athletic bone in their body or are well past their athletic career, so to speak, but they just want to be there and minister. They want to be there distributing gospel literature. You go into a rec yard with 600 inmates and we got 12 players and 10 of them are on the field. Well, that leaves two people to give out gospel literature to 600 guys. We need more non-playing volunteers, so to speak. And so there was a there was a place for people from, you know, 18 years of age up to 110 years of age to be plugged into our ministry. So, you know, a lot of people would think, well, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a ball player, so I can't be involved in that ministry. Yeah, you can in a lot of very you know impactful ways. Right, right. That makes sense. I'm curious to know, what was the organizational structure like? Like, obviously, the bigger it gets, the more involved the more your time is stretched as the CEO and director. So as you were kind of growing and it was building, how did you figure to, to do an organizational structure to, uh, to make the ministry more effective and efficient? That's a good question. Uh, the first thing we did was, um, well, in order to uh, become a nonprofit, you have to incorporate uh, first. So in, in order to incorporate, you have to have a board of trustees and constitutional bylaws. The way we set up our ministry and I think it's the right way to do it. I, I was going to grad school at, at the time, and I remember taking a management course, and it talked about how you can set up a strong director weak board or a weak director strong board. Well, I didn't want to be a weak director, but I definitely didn't want this to be the Dale Gladding Prison Ministry. I didn't want this to revolve around me, because A, you know, if God would call me home, I get hit by a bus and the ministry would, would, would dissolve and no longer exist. But I also, again, I, I, know the own, I know my own heart. I know how deceitful that can be. And I wanted to be held accountable to a strong board. So we set up our ministry where I wasn't an employee of the board. You know, they understood that I, that I was called of God to start this ministry, but I was accountable to the board. And right. so I think that's very, very, very important. You know, if, if you're strong enough in your calling and, 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 and you're in your sweet spot and you know you're operating in the center of God's will for your life, you shouldn't be afraid to be held accountable. You should crave that. So I surrounded myself with some good, godly men 
um, that had, you know, some of them had some business acumen, but most of them, you know, rose up from the ranks that, you know, were either my friends or they were our missionary athletes that um, became, you know, board members or whatever. And we had some pastors on there that provide some, you know, some uh, mature spiritual leadership. But I think that's very, very, very important is to have that, that accountability model. Um, and so that, that's, that's the way we did it. You know, we, we would have, generally speaking, you know, um, anywhere from eight to 12 board members. I think you get well beyond that and it gets very cumbersome and you got, you know, too many uh, cooks uh, involved in, 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 in the pot there. Uh, you have few too, a few, too few guys. Uh, I think you can run the risk of just having a few yes men and nobody's really willing to right. hold your feet to the fire. Um, so, I mean, and we had a lot of you know, financial, um, checkpoints, uh, along the lines, you know, like, you know, we had a, we had a financial treasurer, um, or a financial secretary, we had a treasurer, we had a, a independent board. Uh, we were members of ECFA, this Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. It's kind of the like good housekeeping seal of approval on ministries where you have to have an independent audit, uh, before Sarbanes-Oxley, they used to come in there and, uh, look for fraud after Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which happened after like the Enron scandal and some others. Right. Congress passed the law where they came in and, and assumed fraud is taking place, and you had to disprove it. The burden of proof was on you, and we always got a you know a clean bill of health. I said, you know, you might find you know something that we did wrong just out of lack of expertise, but you never find anything wrong that you know we did purposely, and we always got a clean bill of health from our audits and from the ECFA. But I think taking steps to hold your own feet to the fire, you know, I mean, yeah, could we have operated without the ECFA uh, seal of approval? Sure, would it have been easier? Yeah, would it have been um, less expensive? Yeah, because you have to pay for an audit, which might be, you know, $3,500 or something like that, $5,000 depending on the size of your organization. You have to, you have to join the ECFA for, you know, $500 or $1,000 or $1,500, again, depending on the size of your organization. So we're, we're paying six, $7,000 a year to be held accountable. But we did right. that because we wanted to put financial constraints around us. We wanted to protect things. We didn't want anybody to go rogue. And we want to be able to look our supporters in the eye and say, you know what, we have met every threshold. So we can look you in the eye and say, you know what, your dollar is being spent for the purpose that you gave it for. There's no shenanigans going on here. Everything passed an independent audit. And, you know, you, you, you can feel good about giving to our ministry. And so I think holding yourself accountable, not, we're not waiting for somebody else to come in there and, and catch you. No, put, the, put those safeguards around yourself so that you're not tempted and so that everything's above board. I think it's, you know, I, I get laughed at by my kids and by, by, by the, the players on our teams. When I'm going down the highway, if the speed limit's 70, man, I put it on 70 and I put it on cruise control and then I sit back and I don't have to worry about is there a state trooper over here or whatever? You know what? Because I'm obeying the law. It right. takes, when you put those financial safeguards around you that, that and, and you got six or seven different pairs of eyes, you know, scrutinizing everything, man, if, unless you're a lot smarter than I am, you can't get away with anything. So why, you, you don't feel tempted because it's, it's, you know, there's no opportunity to do it. So I think any ministry should always put all those financial safeguards around there, uh, personal safeguards around you, you know, uh, you know, so that, that you're not tempted to become a Lone Ranger and, and go off here or whatever. You know, I, I, I to this day, I meet with two different accountability groups, one on Tuesday. I just had breakfast uh, with a couple of guys that we, we hold each other spiritually accountable. I meet with local pastors on Thursday for the same purposes. You can't be afraid of that kind of stuff. You have to actually seek it out. Don't wait for it to come to you. You know, I think that that's a good leadership model is, you know, if you're doing God's will and you're doing it the right way, you're not afraid to have people look over your shoulder because you got nothing to hide. Right, right. So another question I think some people might be curious about, and I uh, and hope you don't mind sharing, what, when was the first time you actually collected any kind of uh, payment or revenue from the ministry? Okay. Um, my, my, my earlier ministry, like I said, I was a volunteer from about 87 to maybe 90. Um, and then it was becoming, you know, there was more and more and more paperwork involved from the standpoint of like, you, you can't just, you know, knock up or knock on the front door of a prison on a Saturday and say, hey, here we are. You know, you got to right. com communicate with them, get permission. You got to send and uh, submit all your your um, players or, or team members uh, background information because they're going to run an NCIC, basically an FBI background check. 
on everybody. You got to provide, you know, you get you order uniforms, sports equipment, gospel literature, you know, around. There's a whole you know network of things that had to be taken care of. Uh, I was very fortunate in that God placed me during this period of time. I was working as a recreation director, and I was also head of volunteer services and uh, director of development at a Christian retirement community. And uh, I wrote a one of my three books. It was kind of a autobiographical to some degree, but it was about the first 20 years of that ministry's history. And God put me in what I call the backside of the desert. You know, God prepared me to run the country's largest athletic prison ministry by making me the recreation director at a Christian retirement committee. That doesn't make sense in man's economy. It made sense in God's economy <laughs> because I learned at age 23 how to supervise staff, how to supervise hundreds of volunteers, how to plan overnight trips, how to raise funds with direct mail and, and other things of that nature. I mean, God really put me in, in, in a sweet spot for, for, from that standpoint. So um, I just think it, it, it's very, very, very important to follow God's leading, to walk through the doors he opens, not to whine and complain when he closes the door. I'm not going to sit there and like, what's God doing? I'm, I'm, I want to do this, and he's got me over here. He taught me everything I needed to know at age 23, 24, 25. So anyway, eventually, because I'm in this Christian retirement community, I had a great relationship. I still do. I mean, 20 some odd years later, I still have a great relationship with, with the, the people that, that run that. And I went to them one year and said, look, I need to spend some more time fostering my ministry, growing my ministry. Instead of working five days a week here, can I work four 10 hour days and spend one day a week part time in my office? And they said, yeah, go for it. We believe in you. We believe in God's calling on your life. I go to him the next year and say, look, things are really mushrooming. You know, the ministry is growing by leaps and bounds. How about this? Instead of giving me a raise this year, how about if I only work three and a half days a week? So, you know, 32, 35 hours a week, and you still pay me for the 40, but but don't give me a raise. And they, they, hmm. they, they bought into that. And then I finally went to him the following year and said, look, the timetable is perfect. And they allowed me. I gave them notice in February. They allowed me from February to, to December to raise support while I was working on this full-time, uh, while I was still working in, in their full-time employment, um, so that when I kind of hit the ground running January 1st of 1994, you know, I had some money escrowed and, and had enough to live on for like six months and had regular donors coming in, so that's how the ministry mushroomed. So basically three years as a volunteer, about three years part-time, and then I went full-time. One thing I, I will caution you, you guys, and this is not to scare anybody off, this is just to, to kind of take the, blinder, the blinders off. Uh, right. 19 days after I went into full-time ministry, my two-year-old son had a massive stroke. Mm. And I remember uh, talking to my former boss at the retirement community, and he said, Dale, that's not a coincidence. You just went kind of like from the back pew to the front row, and now you're in Satan's crosshairs. Uh, you know, and Satan's a coward, uh, Jason. You know, if he can't get you, he'll go after your wife. If he can't get you and your wife, he'll go after your kids. I mean, Satan went after my two-year-old son, you know, right. struck him down with, with, with a, a massive stroke. God had the last laugh because, you know, yesterday I told you we, we played five three-on-three pickup games uh, at a Celebrate Recovery uh, picnic uh, up here in, um, in our neck of the woods in Sebastian. And, you know, who was the leading scorer on our team. My son, who's now 26 years old, who was born right-handed, had to learn to do everything left-handed, still has minimal mm. use of his right hand or, or you know, as, far, as far as his fine motor skills. That young man will go into a prison and play against the best 10 basketball players in a 3,000-man institution and score 25, 30, 35 points on those guys. They call him the white LeBron, you know, in some of the prisons. <laughs> that now, God always has the last laugh. But I will tell you this. I mean— if you're in the back pew of your church, you know, you're a back row Baptist, mediocre Methodist, passive Presbyterian, whatever, Satan's got you right where he wants you. So he's not going to come after you. He, he doesn't want to stir the pot because guess what? You're just you're just putting in your time. And you're not doing anything for the kingdom's sake. You step out there, you know, put your head above the clover, so to speak, and Satan will come after you, your family, whatever. So you go into full-time ministry, you be ready for spiritual warfare like I can't begin to describe to you. But... God always protects. God always has the last laugh, and I wouldn't choose any other lifestyle. You know, I want to be on the front row. In fact, that, that, that's the slogan for our ministry now, Risk Tickets for Christ, is moving believers from the sidelines to the front lines. You might be familiar with uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the man in the arena speech. You know, he gave it at the, the Sorbonne in, in Paris, France back in 1912. And basically, he's saying, you know, 
you know who gets the credit? It's not the critic. It's not the guy sitting, you know, in, in row G or whatever, you know, making fun of the guy that's getting his, his, his clock cleaned in the arena. The credit goes to the man that actually climbed over the ropes, stepped into the arena. And what happens in the arena is almost inconsequential. Okay, it's the fact that he had the courage and followed God's calling and, and, and prompting. He had the faith to do it. You know, when I went full time, the uh, like I said, I was the director of recreation. The director of food services said to me, he said, Dan, you have an awful lot of faith. I'm like, no, I don't, Bob. I said, I have a little bit of faith in a very, very big God. And that's, that's the key, man. God gets right. your mustard seed of faith. And if you have it, in, you know, put it in the right place, in the right personhood, man, the sky is the absolute limit. And one thing I was telling guys I was having breakfast with today, because a couple of these guys were trying to figure out, you know, God's will for their lives and this and that. And I'm trying to convey my kids uh, the, the, the same uh, the same idea or concept is, you know, find something that you're you're good at and most importantly that you're passionate about, you know, and and somehow find a way to, to make it a calling, make it a ministry or make it your vocation. But, you know, you could pay me a million dollars a year to do something on a assembly line. And by day three, man, I'd be like putting a gun to my head. I just I couldn't do it. You know, you pay me minimum wage to do something that involves. I mean, my passions are saving souls, saving unborn babies and racial reconciliation. They're the three things that, f that fuel my fire. So I have a, you know, you were talking earlier about, you know, being, the ability to, to, to say no to things and, and, and not to spin your wheels doing something that maybe you're not. Call and I think that is as important as it is to, to say yes to God, saying no to the things that are not of God. You know, it's something that, that looks like it's good on the surface, but it's not what God's calling you to do. Right now, I'm 57. If it doesn't involve saving souls, saving babies, racial reconciliation, it might be a good cause, but I'm, I'm not the guy. Okay, because I want to do something that I'm called to God to do, that I'm passionate about. My time is short, you know, and the Lord's coming back soon. 80,000 souls, according to K.P. Yohannan, Gospel for Asia, are dying and entering a Christless eternity each and every day. What are we doing about it? That's what wakes me up in the morning. That's what excites me. That's what fuels my fire. So, you know, find something that you're passionate about. You know, I mean, I love that's how I got involved in my previous ministry. I, I love Christ and I love sports. It's not rocket science. Let's kind of put the two together and use right. my love for Christ, my love for sports, and and share the good news. You know, it's uh, I used to play in, in some church leagues, you know, recreationally, and I'm like, you know, it just makes no sense. There's no evangelism that's taking place. You know, nobody's sharing the gospel. There's no discipleship. You know, you just kind of show up, play the game, and go home. And there's not even any fellowship. You know, we don't like the other guys on the other team. We, we barely get along with guys on our own team. You know, everybody, you know, gets around home plate. We pray together. Then we try to kill the other team right. during the game. Then we pray and go home and complain about all the bad calls and this and that. I'm like, I'm spinning my wheels in this church league. I mean, there might be some good church leagues out there. I'm not saying that. But I found, you know what, if I'm going to if I'm gonna recreate, I want to do it for eternal purposes. And it's like, I mean, yesterday, we, we play four hours of pickup basketball every week. You know, I got about this much cartilage in my in my two knees left. But I'll go out and play two hours on a Monday night with at-risk youth so I can share my faith. You know, I don't want to play in a rec league to get a trophy. You know, I want eternal rewards, and I want to see that young man who has no positive male role model in his life. I want to model Christ before him. I want to share the gospel. And guess what? Basketball is an international language. Let's use it. You know, Thursday night we do the same thing indoors. We invite kids down. They can, they can down here in Florida where it's, you know, 95 degrees in, in the summertime and in the thunderstorms every evening. Guess what? You can come to an air-conditioned gym and play for free. Oh, but here's the catch. You sit down for 15 minutes at halftime and you listen to a gospel message from one of our speakers. And guess what? They come out, you know, 25, 35, 45, 55 young men each and every week. You know, take what God's given you. Take what you love to do. you got a passion for it. You know, find a financial model that'll make it work and run with it. You know, take that first baby step of faith because that's what our ministry is about. Risk takers for Christ. That's why when I left my previous ministry, I thought, you know what? Instead of me doing all of this, I would like God to use me to light a fire, spiritually speaking, under other people. Say, man, if God can do this with this knucklehead, you know, if God can use me to share my faith with half a million inmates, you know, across North America and Africa, what can he do with you? If you just give them half a chance. Right. Amen. Amen. That's uh, I love, you know, with the passion and what you love doing and then finding that financial model to make it work. Because yeah. uh, I think that's the one thing, unfortunately, isn't shared enough. You know, it's great to follow your passion, right. uh, find out what God has for you to do, but make it work to where it's not. Right. 
a financial stress for your family and stuff. Well, it is. And, uh, it, it is a financial stress, and, and, and that's probably the key is find yourself a good woman that can, uh, you know, sure. if you give her a dime, she'll turn it into three nickels kind of thing. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, my wife is a wonderful budgeter. I'm, I'm kind of like the spender. She's the saver, you know, and, uh, I mean, we have lived hand-to-mouth for the 20-some-odd the years that I've been in full-time ministry okay. because we never know when the paycheck's going to come you know even in my previous ministry you know it was bigger so it was a little more you know financially solvent but you know risk takers is a startup ministry we have about a hundred thousand dollar budget my previous ministry had about six hundred thousand dollar budget so i mean but you know what we've grown from an eighteen thousand dollar year budget now to a hundred thousand dollar budget in just a few short years so god is blessing and if god's behind it he'll bless you know from from that standpoint but you do have to be willing to do without you know, it, it, it's hard to watch, you know, other people that, you know, God's using in non-ministry vocations where they're called and, they're you know, they're taking, you know, two-week cruises and they're living in big houses and you're doing this. You got to keep your, your, your eye on the prize, you know. You know, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. You know, the Apostle Paul was shipwrecked and imprisoned and beaten and left for dead and all those kind of things. So you, you can't look at, you know, financial blessings and say well that means god's behind it that's you know god's economy works in a, in a different way but if you're doing what god wants you to do you know he'll help where, where god guides god provides one of my spiritual mentors always reminds me of that you know if god's behind right. it he's called you to do it he's not going to leave you you know begging bread so but by the same token he's in most cases he's not going to so flood your coffers that you don't rely on him and that's a good place to be really I mean, you don't want to have, and David talked about this, you know, he didn't want to have so little that he cursed God, but, or so much that he didn't rely on God. So you want to be in that, 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 that place, you know, we've never, I know some ministry heads that make outlandish salaries. I think that's ridiculous. You know, I, I want enough to support my family, you know, maybe go on a camping trip, you know, we have a 21 foot camper that sit down in our driveway that, you know, we don't own the bank owns, but we love to go camping. That's our vacation. That's our getaway. Nothing wrong with that. You know, nothing wrong. You know, I used to feel like I had to explain to people when, you know, we got a new car. Well, not new, new to us, you know, people, well, you're in ministry. Why do you have, you know, you know, God doesn't want you to be a pauper, but I don't know that he wants you to be a prince this side of glory, you know? So, yeah, a good financial model so that's self-sustaining. People don't want to constantly give to a ministry that's in financial crisis. That, right. I mean, well, some things happen that, you know, you, they're unexpected that, yeah, you might have to reach out to your donors. Yeah. But if that happens over and over and over and over again, guess what? That's financial mismanagement. That's a lack of proper stewardship. So you need to apply business models, proper business practices to your ministry so that you're not constantly asking people, can you please bail me out of debt? Can you please help me? You know, well, the first time, yes. Second time, maybe. Third time, no. You didn't learn your lesson number one or number two times. So, right, true, true. So, before we, um, you know, before we get off here, you've shared a whole lot of great things, and I'm sure you probably have more in uh, in your books. Uh, we, did, we didn't get a chance to talk about them in depth, but what are your three books? Uh, I'd, I'd love to put a link to them up on the website, okay? And that way, people could check it out. Yeah, the first one was unconditional surrender. And again, my, my, my board in my previous ministry came to me um, after 20 years of, of the ministry saying, you know what, not that, you know, God's going to call you home, not that you're going to be hit by a bus and across the street. But if you are, the whole history of the ministry goes down the tube. So they asked me to write um, a, a book about that. And it was, you know, somewhat autobiographical, the early part about, you know, my salvation experience, my calling to ministry. Uh, but I, I turned it unconditional surrender because... Long story short, back in September of 1986, uh, my wife and I were camping um, down in Williamsburg, Virginia. And uh, I just saw God just tugging on my heart and saying, look, I need to get along with you. We need to talk. And I remember just telling my wife that. I just kind of went to a dark corner of the campground, looked up at a starless sky and said, God, whatever you want to do with my life, that's all I want. No more my will. No more my dreams, my ambitions. I'm yours. You know, you created me, you bought and paid for me, you redeemed me at a price. And I really, it was just, it was an, it was an unconditional surrender. If God had said, Dale, I want you to ride the back of a trash truck for the next 50 years, I would have done it. It was really an emptying of myself. It was, you know, it was uh, uh, John 3.30. You know, 
he must increase, I must decrease. Those two things go together. And so I, I wrote uh, Unconditional Surrender and I talked about that. If you really want God to use you, you got to come to a point. And like I said, I, I was saved at age 17. God wasn't on the throne of my life until I was 22 because I had that pride issue. And nine months after I had that, that uh, you know, emptying experience where I unconditionally surrendered to God, two things happened. I said, our first baby was born, so be careful about going, going camping with your wife in a little pup tent. And secondly, <laughs> my ministry was born. I mean, nine months almost to the day, I walk into a prison for the first time. Wow. Uh, the second book uh, was entitled Difference Makers uh, because, man, I, that's all I want in my life. I want to make a difference in my generation for Jesus Christ, you know. <laughs> You know, I tell you, uh, I mentioned earlier that, you know, uh, my time is limited. My dad, when he was 77, had a heart attack. His dad, when he was 77, had a stroke. So I'm 57. I forgot I got 20 more years uh, to go, and I'm going to either grab my heart or my head, and God's going to call me home. So I'm on the clock, man, and I want my life to count for Jesus Christ. You know, life is short. Eternity is long. So I want to be about my father's business. So that, that book, it, it, it's it's 12 chapters. Uh, it's written for small group studies or Sunday school class, and it's really, it asks, you know, presents in each chapter a different, you know, premise or concept, and then asks some follow-up discussion questions, and do you really want to make a difference for Jesus Christ? Or do you want to do what most Christians do? They get their fire insurance, and then they, they want to travel from point A, that's their conversion experience, to point B, the day the Lord calls them home, without making any waves, without ruffling any feathers, traveling on the radar. What did you, what did you accomplish? You know, my life verse is Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, and he who began to work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, God began to work. He declares it good. He's going to complete it. So guess what? I'm just along for the ride. So I want to make sure that this ride is worthwhile. So that second book was called Difference Makers, and the third one was called Consumed by Christ. You know, I am consumed by Jesus Christ. Um, at the end of my life, this is my, my heart cry. I don't want there to be anything left of Dale Gladding, the sinner. Okay, Dale Gladding is, is, is a wretched sinner saved by God's amazing grace. And, you know, going back to that John 3.30, I want to keep decreasing, 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 Christ increasing, 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 increasing. So when I take my dying breath, it's not, it's just almost like a seamless transition. There's not, there was nothing right. left of Dale Gladding anyway. He left it all on the field. I mean, I am a competitive cuss, let me tell you. You know, I'm a nice guy, and you, then you, I step on the line of the softball field <laughs> or the basketball court, watch out. I mean, I, yeah. I'll, I'll play within, the, within the, the rules of the game. You know, I won't do anything to hurt you purposely or, or violate a rule, but I will try to beat you, and, and that, that's just the way I'm wired, you know. Um, I, I take that same competitiveness in my walk with Christ. I want to squeeze every ounce of spiritual potential out of my life. I don't want to leave anything left on the playing field. Right. So this, cool. that's, that's why the third book is, is, is called Consumed by Christ. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to have a link to all those on businesswithbordo.com. And um, where can everybody go and find what you have going on? And, you know, if there's a website or Perfect. social media, anything like that. Uh, our, our website for the ministry is uh, risktakersforchrist, all spelled out, dot org, risktakersforchrist.org. Um we have a Facebook page as well. I also have a personal um, blog uh, page. It's at Dale Gladding, D-A-L-E-G-L-A-D-I-N-G.com. Uh, and uh, I'm a political animal. Um, I, I ran for office, U.S. House of Representatives, twice in New Jersey, won two Republican primaries, lost two general elections. I actually ran for state rep here. Not because I want to promote myself. I look at... at public service as a ministry. It should be a ministry. It should be a calling, not a career. And man, every time I ran, I did two things. I, I shared my faith and, and, and I, I wore it on my sleeve. You know, every, every door I knocked on, you know, I talked about Christ. And my number one issue is, is the pro-life issue. You know, I think, my gosh, we're, we're, we're murdering. We're murdering. We're sacrificing on the altar of Baal a, a million babies a year in this country, 62 million since Roe v. Wade in 1973. I think for that reason, Christians need to get involved in the political arena. You know, I, I heard Franklin Graham speak not too long ago, and he said, you know what, God's not just withdrawing his hand of blessing on America, he's judging America for these three reasons. One, we're murdering a, a million babies a year. Two, we've thrown the apple of his eye, Israel, under the bus and backed over two or three times. And three, we've had the audacity to try to redefine his definition of marriage. And so I ran on a strong, you know, my platform was, was faith, family, and freedom, you know, in that order. I said, you know what, 
don't vote for me. Please don't vote for me because I'm a sinner. I'm a, I'm a person. I have feet of clay, and I'll disappoint you. Vote for what I believe in. Because here's what I believe in. The Bible and the Constitution of the United States. It's not rocket science, you know? So uh, if you want to read about some of my, my political discourse, I, I, I talk about you know, where, where faith and politics intersect. That's at dalegladding.com. But the, the ministry uh, website is risktakersforchrist.org. We have a daily devotional uh, online that we, we post there. We also have subscribers. Uh, it's free of charge. And we just stand out. It's called Dare to be Daring. You know, uh, one of the things I, I wish Christian men would do, Jason, to a much larger degree is be better leaders in their families, their churches, and their community. You know, Amen. take take a, a baby step of faith. You know, stop doing nothing but, you know, sitting at home holding, you know, your wife's hand with this one and your kid's hand with that. That's important. You know, give them that stability they need. But let them see you out leading the charge. You know, be a mighty man of God. You know, I love preaching on, on, on David's mighty men. Uh, so we, we, we do these, we actually do men's conferences around the country, Dare to be Daring men's conferences, because this all ties in with my prison ministry. The number one common denominator for all these men that I've ministered to, the half million men, is a lack of a positive male role model. If you have a positive male role model in your life, chances are you'll never spend a day behind bars. But you take that dad out of the home and, and you, you have a young boy who's being raised by a mom or a grandmom, guess what? He's going to be running the streets at no longer 12, 13, 14 years of age when I started in prison ministry in 87, how about eight, nine, and 10? And he's gonna get right. in trouble with the law. Out of wedlock birth rate. Man, I talked about that on the, on the political stump and people are like, why are you talking about that? And because it's the leading predictor of lifelong poverty and future incarceration. So don't tell me that you care about the poor and that you're willing to deal with the root cause of, of, of poverty, which is out of wedlock birth rate, which is 73% in the, in the black community, 47% percent in the white community. You know, let's, let's talk about morality. Let's talk about the family the breakdown of the families was causing a lot of the problems that we have here in America. And it's because men have abdicated their leadership responsibilities in their home, in their churches, and in their community. Right. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And uh, y'all make sure you go and get uh, these books, check out the websites. And uh, and I might actually get the uh, definitely the Difference Makers myself. All right. And Because uh, I feel like it would be a good study, uh, you know, Bible study or small group study. So make sure y'all check all that out. And, uh, and, and Dale, we appreciate you being on the show, man. Okay. God bless you. We really, really appreciate it. And, uh, sharing your story and being able to incorporate how people who want to start a ministry also do have to you know, learn some of the basic business fundamentals. Yeah. So. And, and if you don't know them, surround your yourself with people that do. There you go. There you go. Alrighty. Well, that'll do it for another interview with Mr. Uh, Dell Gladdings, and we will be back next week with another interview. God bless. Alrighty. That was the interview with Mr. Dell Gladdings. Uh, Dale, want to thank you again so much for being on the show and sharing your experiences. And hopefully that'll help somebody out there who may be trying to figure out if it's possible to do ministry full time and live off of it. And it also helps to uh, to explain the fact that you do need to have some type of a busy business savviness about you, because uh, it does take money to do ministry, and there are you know sales factors and everything else that are involved in doing so. And uh, anyway, thank you so much for doing it, and I hope you got a lot out of that. Again, the three books that he mentioned that he wrote is uh, "Unconditional Surrender," "Difference Makers," and "Consumed by Christ." And I uh, just look him up, Dale. Gladdings and his websites are risktakersforchrist.org and dellgladding.com. Anyway, so make sure you check them out and uh, let, let me know what you thought about the uh, the interview, the show. Uh, you know, share the show, hashtag business with Bordeaux. And if you keep that going, then we may have another true strength giveaway in the near future. Speaking of which, um, you know, shout out to our patron, True Strength Apparel. But I want to go ahead and name the actual winner of this week's True Strength giveaway. Now, what this individual wins is a t-shirt from the truestrengthapparel.com website, any of the t-shirts. And so this week's winner, uh, winning simply because he hashtagged Business with the Bordeaux and True Strength Apparel. Um, in his post, whenever he shared the episode. Now, I do want to give, I mean, there's not really honorable mentions, but uh, there were some people who did share the show, and uh, and that was um, Work Smart, uh, Work Smart Podcast, and 
I've been talking with this. Uh, it's a team. What's well, actually the work, uh, work smart show, but podcast, radio show, website, and uh, I've been talking with this um, this team, and uh, they've been incredible. They're building up a website, uh, kind of similar to what I'm doing, and so it's good to be able to have some other people out there that's uh, you know trying to inspire business leaders and entrepreneurs into doing you know, what it is that needs to be done to help, um, to help everybody else out there. So make sure you follow them, uh, work smart show. And, uh, and also to, uh, our other patron, Mr. Uh, WordPress Stan. So, uh, he shared the show and I really appreciate that because, uh, you know, y'all sharing the show really helps get the, get it out there. And hopefully it's helping somebody that comes in contact with it. But the winner for this week's show or this giveaway is I really hope I'm saying this right. Uh, Mr. Nick Celestine. I hope I said it right. I apologize if I didn't, but uh, he shared the episode, uh, The Grow the Heck Up, with Captain OG, Mr. Lavoisier Cornerstone, and he also shared the episode with DJ Jeremiah, uh, which I did not too long ago. Anyway, uh, congratulations. Uh, make sure you get in contact with me and uh, so I can get your information. That way we can get a shirt out there to you, man. And for anybody else out there, we're going to be doing this again uh soon so make sure you listen to the show so you know the details about the next one and uh and i appreciate everybody that participated and that shared the show and even if you didn't win uh i hope you're not upset with me you know i just don't have a lot of money to give away a whole bunch of shirts <laughs> so anyway uh i thank you all for listening again to the show make sure you hit the website businesswithbordeaux.com i'm trying to keep it updated with new um a new homepage, which is going to home a lot of current news stories and tips and uh, different things going on in the business world that may relate to small business owners. So make sure you're checking that out. Let me know what you think about that and everything at uh, businesswithbordeaux.com. And there's even a contact page there if you want to reach out to me for anything. So anyway, and uh, if you want to hit me up on Twitter at Jason Bordeaux one and Instagram is the same. So with all that said and done, I do want to thank you all for listening to the show and, um, you know, just lending me your ears every week and sharing the show for all of you who are awesome enough to do so. So anyway, we will be back next week with another interview and I appreciate all of you. Thanks and God bless.